Hello and welcome to episode 122 of The Winning Agenda. My name is Jesse Marshall and I'm here with my trusty sidekick, Wilfred E. Horrig. How are you, Wilfie? We're on this again, are we? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's Terminal Directive time. But that being said, as excited as we are about Terminal Directive and all the fun that it has to offer... Dear listeners, you'll have to wait until next week to hear our thoughts on that because uh, both Wilfie and I have our playthroughs scheduled uh, over the next couple of days and we'll be giving you our far more educated thoughts after we've had a chance to actually hold the cards in our own hands, won't we, Wilfie? Yeah, I think Terminal Directive is pretty cool. Like, I'm quite excited for the legacy concept and how it actually plays out, like, as an experience, not speaking so much from the, like, cards. We'll talk about the cards later. Um, some other time, but just as a you know gameplay experience, I think it's a really interesting thing for FFG to have done, and I want yeah I do want to see whether they've managed to create like a cohesive experience, just because there are quite a f- I feel like there are quite a few constraints in that model, and like it's I think it would be interesting um, to work around them, like from a um perspective of putting that legacy format into the game of netrunner already like you know you can i I think there are a couple cool things that i've seen already but we won't spoil too much so we'll save it for another time yeah what do you think are some of the advantages because i can think of a few of bringing a legacy format style game into an existing game as opposed to trying to create a game that's exclusively that legacy game right well i think the main like synergy that Netrunner already has is that deck building is already like an iterative process that you Mm -hmm. already start with some idea and then you change it and you, you know, upgrade it as you play more games. So that sort of lends itself naturally to sort of the game telling you, okay, you can upgrade now. Yep. Um, So, yeah, I would say that's the probably the biggest advantage that I can think of. And it seems like from reviews that I've read that that's been handled pretty well. Um, I really, I also really like the progression and it ties into what you're saying from core set to terminal directive that if I was a new player, I played the core set, I developed some sort of preferences about which factions I liked and which cards were my favorites in the core set. I could then go into terminal directive and already have, you know, those loyalties and those interests in terms of the core set cards expand them into this terminal directive game. So I've already got a bit of investment because one thing that I find with other campaign style games is that if you come in cold um you've never seen the cards before there's all these different options for deck building you just sort of choose something and then you're stuck with it yeah i see because like you have to usually have to stick with something for the whole campaign so yeah i can see where that might be an advantage um but in that sense are you expecting like i know that ffg is expecting people like you start off with the core set and then you can jump right into Terminal Directive. But mm. do you feel like, a, like, I mean, of course, at least most of the people we know will not be on that path, but like will have already have had experience with Netrunner as a, um, as a full, as the full Netrunner experience of, you know, having all the, at all or most of the data packs and playing tournaments and stuff. So do you think, um if you're go like do you think that a lot of people will be doing that 
going through yeah, that path? I think so. I, I think a lot of people will still use that deck building restriction on themselves, at least, of the core set plus terminal directive. Yeah, uh, I think that's what we're planning to do when we do it. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's what I'm planning to do as well. And what that does, I think, is possibly even accentuate what I was talking about before in terms of people have faction loyalties. You know, people will already have a preference for whether they like the HB playstyle or the Wayland playstyle better. And similarly on the runner side between the two runner factions in the box. Uh, and so they'll bring all of those memories and experiences and, you know, every Crim deck or Shaper deck that they've tried before into this and they'll you know, have a look at the card pool, make a decision about which deck to build and then really go for it. Um, and I think because people already have those existing relationships with the the card pool as a whole, um, it'll make exploring these new cards in a limited format, but one that includes the core set, which I think was one, probably one of the best releases for Netrunner in terms of power level, defining factions, everything else. It was a, a great course set and it launched the game in a really good way. Um, I think allowing people access to those cards as well as some new cards is a really uh, interesting format and I think it'll be a really fun way to deck build. Yeah, I definitely can't wait to get stuck into it, um, especially doing some limited for format deck building. I think that'll be a bit of a blast from the past in terms of, you know, the f- what cards we have at our disposal um did we want to talk about the uh cache refresh is it yeah i think that's another important piece of news that we've got to cover uh do you want to introduce our listeners to it for those who uh, haven't heard sure so cache refresh is a new um side format which i think will be premiering at regionals the regional mm. season this year yeah, where for you the can second o- day uh, on the second day yeah so if you're running a, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how it works from a logistics perspective, but um, it's like there's in the regionals kits have prizes for the main tournament, and they also have prizes for the side cache refresh tournament, um, and you can't, they don't mix and match, so you can't win the, like from what we've seen so far, you can't win the cache refresh prizes in the regular tournament. With the exception that the two finalists in the double elimination win some cash refresh prizes. Oh, cool. Uh, well, yeah. So if you want to read all about that, you can. But I'll just go over the format quickly. You have, it's sort of like uh, 1111, which is a format we've seen uh, sort of dip in and out of popularity over the past year or so, where you have um, a limited card pool, but a limited card pool that you get to select. So not just everyone has the same cards, but everyone has the same restrictions on what uh, section of the overall card pool they want to play. And so this is similar where this has one core set, Terminal Directive, um, Red Sand, and Flashpoint. Uh, but also each player gets to choose a deluxe expansion for their corp and a deluxe expansion for their runner. So that's the um, of the four non-Terminal Directive deluxe expansions, big boxes. And so that's the spice in the format. Yeah, so it's sort of like um, kind of Flashpoint, Red Sand, Corset, and Terminal <laughs> Directive. Yep. Yeah, so that's the most recent expansions as well as the Corset, which is yeah, pretty normal. But also you get to um, sort of change around what cards you want to play or what cards you have access to by being able to select from the deluxe expansions, which I think will especially be important because of uh, agendas on the corp side, um, as well as 
like the big boxes are pretty high power in general, although not uniformly. Like, but also I think there's the, a bit of a disparity between them. Yeah, there was a there was a power disparity in the core set as well that was somewhat rectified by the big boxes. So the factions that were weaker in the core set or missing key pieces often got those key pieces in their big box. Mm-hmm. So that pretty much by allowing the big box choice on each side, you enable people to play any faction and have a pretty good deck, I think. Right, as opposed to, yep, because core set, like Jinteki. core set terminal directive, yeah, yeah, core set terminal directive and the two data packs are not exactly designed in themselves, but I think core set big box should by themselves create some playable deck for every faction, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a, a really cool format. And from what I understand with the logistics, it's a pretty um, innovative way to run it alongside double elimination that they've come up with. So anyone who's not in the double elimination day two of their regionals, if the regionals has this case refresh format, I don't think all of them will, but most will, I think. Um, so anyone who's not in double elimination on day two can sign up for the case refresh tournament. You only play one side in each round. Um, and that's determined by a bidding mechanism where you bid credits at the start of the game or cards in hand in a quantity starting from 10 because you have five credits, five cards in hand. So you can bid up to 10. Um, and the person who wins that bid to handicap themselves gets to choose which side to play that round. Um, and then the game scoring, the round scoring is just like a normal game. Um and anyone who j- drops from the double elimination in subsequent rounds because they've lost can join the case refresh tournament. Um, I think it's with uh, an equi- a equal win loss record or with a number of wins equal to the number of rounds that have occurred in the case refresh so far minus one or something like that. Uh, so yeah, it's basically as much participation as possible. Anyone who's doesn't make day two can play. Anyone who makes day two but loses early on can play. And then even the people who make it to the final on day two of the main tournament still get some cash refresh prizes. So it gives... Oh, yeah, I didn't I didn't realize it would be like that. But yeah, reading it now, that's cool that if you lose out in double elimination, you're still rewarded for being in... for like winning games in your double elimination in the cash refresh tournament. Yeah. I think that's a cool way to do a side event. Yeah, so it basically tracks your... Uh, double elimination uh, match record and just plugs you into the case refresh tournament. Yeah, which I think is a yeah, it's a very innovative way to do sort of um, side side events, especially when they're like they can be tied into the main event in that way. Like it's not just like they started a random time and anyone who's not playing start like can sign up, but it's like they start precisely when the double elimination does and then sort of runs alongside it. Mm. And even the rounds are supposed to be synchronized. So that's, it's really cool. I've never seen something like this for a two day tournament that gets everyone back involved before in that way. And I applaud FFG organized play. I know a lot of people in the community sometimes get a little frustrated with how slowly things seem to happen with OP, but this is really probably the best thing I've seen from them since, I, since I've been playing Netrunner in terms of innovation. What do you think, Wolfie? Yeah, I think it's a really cool idea. And, you know, um, while I can't say that um, it's going to be easy to devote a lot of time to preparing for this tournament just because, you know, it's a whole different format to regionals, I'll definitely um, at least try and do some, do some creation 
for it and give it a shot. Yeah, and, and if people enjoy it and if it goes well, which I think they will, it really opens the door to be able to run these sorts of events uh, and have an official sanctioned format that we can all then agree on because it comes from FFG and we're not all making up our own little variations on it uh, and run these sorts of events for newer players. You know, it gives a great entry point to say all you need to buy is the latest two cycles, terminal directive, core set, and a big box of your choice. That's yeah, a exactly. much lower price point for entry. Yep, uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing and very important to touch on that it's having FFG take the steps to say, like, we want uh, an entry point to the game that is lower than just standard Netrunner, which can be daunting. I'm sure they know at this point that it can be daunting, I think, is a really big thing. Yeah, that's cool. So the other thing that we wanted to talk about today, I guess we're doing a bit of a, uh, and is now our, the the update on everything that's happened since we've had a last chance to really sit down and talk about the state of the game, is the MWL. Now, we, we interviewed Michael um, a couple of weeks ago. For those of you who haven't heard, Michael Boggs came on the show and spoke about all the card choices and why he put them on the MWL. So that's, if you haven't listened to it, that's a good intro to this discussion because we probably won't um, go over the rationale that he gave in that episode in, in much depth, we might touch on a couple of his comments. Um, but what we wanted to do was, I guess, give our thoughts on the cards on the MWL, but also how they've affected deck building and some of the things that we've come up with since. So, Wilfie, did you want to sort of kick off on, on any of those topics? doesn't have to be in order, just what's come sure, to mind first. Yes. So, um, yeah, as Jesse said, I think we should um, preface this by saying, if you haven't listened to the Boggs interview it's very good and it would be probably a very good way to find out why things got put on the MWL and why um, the FFG designers think that the game is in the state it is such that those moves were necessary Um, but I think that today we just want to talk about what sort of things we see the metagame progressing to post MWL we've already you know, some deck lists have already come out. Um, I don't know if there have been any big tournaments. Uh, I don't think so at the time of this recording. No, I don't um, think so. But, um, yeah, the fact that such... It was quite a large shake-up, both in the cards that came off the list and also the cards that went on the list. I think both of those two factors have led to some archetypes being better some archetypes being worse and then once that happens there's flow on effect so i think it's really important just to look at where we think the metagame is um at this point post mwl Mm. um do you want to start by talking about maybe yeah maybe we can start with just addressing a couple of the key concepts changes in this MWL and the first one is the introduction of three influence do you do you see that as a sort of soft ban or do you see it or possibly and do you see it as um something that allows people to pack that surprise rumor mill that nobody's expecting out of nowhere yeah so that's definitely you, you I think that's a good thing to start by touching upon um is that uh, when we talked to Damon a couple of years ago now i think maybe a year and a bit a year yeah a year and a bit um i go about the first mwl he said and we said um oh maybe it was with the astro errata yeah i think it was the second one yeah, yeah with the astro errata that's right we yeah. said 
is a ra- you know do you see the MWLs being a tiered system where and he said yeah we want we first started by putting Astro in the MWL and it didn't really help so now we're ratering it to being um one per deck um and i think maybe the tier tier 3 approach um or three three times MWL approach is a way to sort of have an intermediate step between those two, especially since I think Arata is a pretty uh, blunt hammer, like in the sense that it has numerous other game design issues that the M- like it doesn't work as cleanly into how Netrunner tournaments are played as MWL does. Yeah, and you can limit one per deck something, but actually changing the numbers or changing the abilities on a card gets very difficult for players to remember. And with the number of cards that are on this level three, you know, Blackmail, DDoS, Faust, Rumil, and Sifa. And Sensi, Cypher. right? Oh, and Sensi. <laughs> if, you, if you changed all of those cards by increasing the play cost or changing the ability or nerfing them in some way with the card text, it would be really difficult for players to remember, I think. Yeah, um, I think... So you sort of really have to add them to this tier three or ban them. Yeah, so in that respect, I think that the tier tier three is a bit better than errata um and a bit in in the sense that it's just an ex- more of an extension of what the mwl is originally like you have mwl1 mwl3 and then you know hopefully never bans yeah um whereas errata is sort of a separate step that where yeah like i i see errata as being a, a separate step that doesn't necessarily um align with the same goals as the mwl mm. um where the mwl is like you know we for competitive diversity we need this i see errata i think this will give more room for errata to be used um in more when there's an issue that doesn't have to do with competitive diversity yeah and so in terms of i think that looking at the objective of the mwl is a really great way to think of it and the objective of the MWL, as far as I could discern originally, was to say you can still play these cards. We're not banning things because we don't want that feeling of you purchasing cards that are useless to you. As much as possible, we'll try and avoid that. Um, and that's fine with me as an approach from FFG. So then within that, they said we want to make it uh, more of a competitive disadvantage. There's more of an opportunity cost to you playing these particular cards. That made sense to me. I think the MWL has been very good at achieving that. Mm-hmm. Um, this approach, I think, is really innovative and good um, of having the level three or the tier three system because it says, okay, the opportunity cost for these cards is even higher. So, yes, you can have that surprise rumor mill, but what are you missing out on to have it? Yes, you can have that DDoS in your deck, but you probably can't have two anymore. And it is one DDoS enough to make your DDoS strategy consistent enough to win a tournament? You know, I don't know. So from that perspective, I think it's already been quite successful in refreshing the metagame. What are your thoughts on on that and how Tier 3 has achieved its objectives? Mm-hmm. I think d- definitely from looking only at the Tier 3 cards, you see a drastic shift in their playability, like as you would expect. you would They're basically different cards, I think, to yeah. when they were not um, on the MW, pointed on the MWL at all. So, uh, yeah, like... I think there's no way to say that it hasn't impacted the metagame and I think it certainly has drastically shifted around not just what cards are playable but what strategies are playable using those cards. Like, Mm. um, I know that 
like if we were to think speak about individual cards, the fact that Sensi is not on the list, for example, makes running, you know, you don't necessarily need to build a runner deck that can run on turn one and possibly avoid hard-hitting news. Yeah, which was really the metagame for the last year or so before Sensi was on this list. Yes, that, that frequently happened. Like, um, And that, I think, opens up a lot more runner... Um, deck building choices than the um, pointing of cards on the runner side takes off like it's a net that in itself is a net opening up of the format mm. um, which I think is really good and it does and you know I have complained about Sensi before just because I think that it more than any other card I think it Temujin hard hitting use sort of um, speed up the game in a way which is really detrimental to diversity, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And um, that's, I might pause you there, Wolfie, and just come to Temujin. Um, hard hitting news a little less so because we had such an effective answer in Aaron Maron, and I think that its prevalence in the metagame has fallen away naturally. Um, but Temujin is still at one extra influence. widely played it's absolutely a criminal staple uh because desperados come off the list and temujin it's influence neutral pre and post mwl for criminal lists that had temujin and desperado in them Mm -hmm. um i still find that from a corp deck building perspective temujin speeds up the game in a way that's really difficult to deal with would you have liked to see it as three i mean i certainly would have liked to see it at least two if there was a tier two, I would have liked to see Temujin on it. If there was only going to be one and three, I would have pushed it up towards three. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I know that, that was, that's been a debate raging on the internet for a while. Uh, ever since we sort of had a glimpse or got hold of the rumor mill that there might be a tier one and a tier three. Like, mm. obviously, Temujin has to go on the list somewhere, but where? And, like, I feel like this is sort of saying Temujin is like a card that's not that we don't want disappearing from the metagame exact entirely like mm. not that it would disappear at three i think i think it would still be playable but in crim certainly yeah definitely in criminal probably not out of faction no um but i think um this is sort of a concession to the fact that temogen yeah is too powerful but also isn't like it also promotes play patterns that are sort of net positive to the game. Like it Mm. encourages running. It requires you to install breakers, make runs for it to be good. And it allows, it's sort of flexible in that you can build any strategy, basically any strategy around it, as long as you're doing those core things. Um, And I sort of see tier three at the moment as being more like we would prefer that, fewer of these cards are played rather than more, which I don't really see Temujin as being. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I can understand why if there's no tier two, it has ended up on tier one. I can I can appreciate those arguments. I guess just from a, a player perspective, I sort of would like to see less of it, although I can understand that some people are happy to see more of it for the reasons that you've outlined. Um, the other sort of suite that's in the in level one is the Mumbad City Hall Bioethics Association Mumba Temple. So Mumba Temple was already there. We've got City Hall and Bioethics added. As every listener who's been listening along for a while knows, I despise uh, Bioethics prison lock decks. So 
I'm very pleased to have those cards on there. I know, Wilfie, you think Mumbad City Hall is one of the top three worst design cards in Netrunner. So you're probably <laughs> pleased to have that on there as well. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't want to complain about it too much since I think yeah. the last year has had plenty of complaining on our side. Yeah. But just that, um, like, really the heart of Netrunner is playing Breakers and interacting with Ice. And, like, I don't mean that in the sense that I want every game to be like that, but that's Ice is the interesting part of the game. Yeah. Um, in from both players' perspectives. So mm-hmm. sort of promoting strategies where ice is basically irrelevant, I think, leads to fairly negative experiences on both sides. But like I don't think that bio I think Bioethics Association by itself is an interesting card. It's just mm-hmm. everything that goes around it, I think. Um like I like the fact that there's a chairman that chairman hero Ronin Bioethics Association is a thing. Like yeah, um, it's I think I think it's a cool idea to have those sort of decks that um run not that don't run in the same way as other decks. Like um, but it, I find it I think as most people do I find it um difficult to interact with when those decks are too prevalent. Yep, and when they have too much support, and really City Hall and Temp- Mumba Temple are support cards that enable consistency in that sort of archetype in a way that you probably don't want those sort of three-card combos to be more consistent. Yeah, so I think that in general the MWL has contains some pretty good choices and, yeah, we can see the effects basically immediately, right? Yeah, um, so I, I think the last thing that's worth touching on before we go on to the post-MW metagame is is the cards that came off. Um, I've been really happy to see... I was really happy to see Eli come off and I haven't been feeling oppressed by the young man um, as a runner in any of my games so far. I've been... <laughs> I, I think it's a, you know, a totally fair card and there are... Paperclip is well over the curve and could well have been on the runner um, side of this MWL. So runners don't have really an excuse to complain about Eli, I don't think. What do you think? Yeah, paperclip is the big thing, I think. Um, but just the fact that ice in general has gotten, I feel, much better mm-hmm. since Eli's printing. Um, and it's not necessarily like Eli is so good that every deck wants to spend its influence on it just because you need good ice of every type. Like, before it was sort of like, if you need ice for your deck you kind of have to play Eli just because Eli's much better than all of the other choices Mm. even in faction for most factions but I don't think that's really the case anymore and there are lots of strategies that I feel like even if Eli wasn't any influence it would still be like not an auto include Mm. the playability of cutlery I think also hurts Eli a lot um, as well as the increased impactfulness of runs on the runner side the fact that letting them in once, which Eli sort of does, can be a lot worse for the corp. And you sort of want to try and have ice that doesn't let them in at all in the early game. Yeah, I think that now that the game's sped up, um, the fact that Eli's sort of uh, difficult to break in both circum- like both the clicking through and the breaking naturally are not so good for the runner. That um, effect hasn't... like including the with paperclip that effect isn't as strong anymore like Mm -hmm. that it's sort of a bad 
option on both sides for the runner. Now it's like runners have enough tools that the porous, potential porousness of Eli is a bit worse than the efficiency would lead you to believe. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, and the other card to come off, I think that's really significant, is prepaid voice pad. Uh, possibly has been more impactful in the metagame than the Eli uh, change. I've been toying around with prepaid Kate and really enjoying it. I've seen prepaid voice pads in all sorts of runner identities over the last few weeks. What are your thoughts on that one? Uh, yeah, I think the fact that prepaid Kate was sort of the terror of the metagame for quite a while um, makes people sort of yearn for the glory days. Um, yeah. But then again, I think the game's much different now to when that strategy was good. So I'm a little more skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, I definitely think that if anything is going to solve the issues that sh- like traditional shaper has where it's really hard to interact with your opponent early and you need to do that, prepaid helps a lot like in that. And that was sort of the main thing that allowed shaper to survive in the AstroScript format. Yep. Um, was the fact that having burst economy and just being generally fast to set up let you um, tussle with AstroScript decks. Yeah, it gave you enough accesses that you had a reasonable chance to win games before yeah, that score yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then again, yeah, so that's that's a, definitely a benefit to prepaid, but I'm not sure how many, like just porting that deck over, I think wouldn't be especially good just because of how much the metagame's changed. So I'm interested to see where it ends up. Cool. Um, and I think that's a, a good segue into post-MWL post-MWL deck building. Uh, So what have you been toying around with? Yeah, exactly. So my sort of thoughts on the runner side are that all these decks that Sensi sort of shut out might be good now just Mm -hmm. because you don't necessarily have to have a runner deck that can run on turn one. Um, You can, it's okay to spend a little more time to set up as long as what you're doing is powerful enough to beat the um, the Caprice Nisei decks, especially, like just yep. Glaciers of all types, but this, you know, especially the Glacier decks that Rumor Mill pushed out of the metagame just because Caprice is still an extremely powerful card and it's sort of been underplayed for a while. Yep. Um, also not going to be mm-hmm. around for a long time, possibly not even around at Worlds, depending on when rotation happens. Exactly, yeah. Noting, um, so definitely give her a um, last hurrah in this format. Um, But yeah, so I think that's where a lot of people have sort of ended up. Um, I've been trying out like a lot of things on that vein, like some vamp, Opus vamp decks, um, even an Au Revoir deck that I really can't recommend. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But just lots of things like that. And like, you know, I've seen murmurings of some strange new keyhole deck being uh hyperdrive some new diaper deck being good um even after the changes and like just lots of options there i think that's the primary place where my runner has gone although i did try and sort of do the opposite of that and i've been working on just criminals good stuff criminals for a while Mm. um just because they don't really haven't really changed at all um yeah you know you lose three influence from temujin but you gain three influence from desperado so if you wanted to you can just register the same 45 that you did pre mwl but 
Yeah, I was actually just looking over my Jinteki.net deck list as we were um, discussing this, and my Andy Good Stuff deck from a few months ago is still tournament legal. <laughs> yeah, like, um, I think that's the... Those two things are the sort of um, standard first ports of call if you want to build a runner post-MWL. Um, mm. But I think that doesn't really go into the nuances of what has changed. Um, I think it might be a bit more time until, at least until I work that out. Yeah. Um, and so what are your thoughts on uh, criminals and how they might deal with some of the new threats coming out in Terminal Directive? Because crims still have some issues with recursion. I know there's a new recursion tool in Terminal Directive, which we'll talk about next week. But um, I think it's in Terminal Directive, might be in the cycle anyway it's coming what's out the, soon what's the new recursion tool that you're talking about sorry uh isn't there some criminal recursion card coming out soon oh the identity steve cambridge uh does he recur stuff yeah he does recur stuff yeah that's what i meant i, I knew i knew there was something coming out anyway yeah. i haven't actually looked at any of this in great detail um so how does crim deal with scorpios i guess is, is the is the issue scorpios may or may not be a player in the metagame but um as a person going to a tournament, would you feel comfortable taking a crim deck with one copy of each type of breaker or maybe one and a half um, when there's Hunter Seeker and Scorpios potentially going to be on the other side of the table? Yeah, it's a bit difficult. Like, I mean, I think there are tools to deal with Hunter Seeker. I think Film Critic is the most applicable one just because Film Critic has been a very good card ever since it's printing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, like, I think that you could just jam film critic in some of your spare slots um for um your good stuff and drum in the deck or employee strike or like there it's not like there aren't any ways to deal with it but like i do sat connor is another one yeah or sat on all one influence and fairly um like depending on your specific criminal strategy all good in some respects other than dealing with scorpios yep so I think that's probably the primary tool that criminals will use. And I don't really... Like, maybe for the first couple of weeks of Terminal Directive, um, the ter- post-Terminal Directive format, this will be popular. But I don't know. It's sort of... I see Scorpios as kind of the thing where it's only good when <laughs> no one's expecting it just because you're sort yeah. of all in on one strategy and it's kind of a very fragile strategy. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, I think that if you were to just tailor your deck a little bit for the first couple weeks of the format um, against Scorpios, I definitely think you can still play like the criminal decks that have been good, you know, ever since Aaron Moran at least. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that that's definitely, if you don't want to think about uh, the MWL too much, that's definitely a good choice and... You know, you don't play any of the cards that got put on the list and um, it's not like you're particularly metagame dependent. Like you can add some political operatives if you're worried about caprices. Um, you can add some plascrates if you're worried about booms, especially now or something. Um, and just that deck is fairly flexible. So that's I expect to see a big resurgence of that. Or not resurgence necessarily, but... I expect that deck to keep its metagame share pretty constant. 
Um, and f- film critic helps to deal with future perfect as well, I guess. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Like you know, I just mean that there are lots of cards that you can put in for certain situations. The mm. deck's very flexible. Uh, can I ask you how is it even remotely fair that if you have Aaron Moran, you can steal an agenda, uh, get two power counters, then siphon them and remove your tags for free? I'm really not sure, but I think discussions of fairness um, might need to be left until another time. Maybe we can start a new podcast called The Friendly Agenda. Yeah, and and we can have a weekly segment called How Is That Fair? I think so too. Listeners can uh, mail in any of your thoughts for the new How Is That Fair segment. Uh, Get on it, thewinningagenda at gmail.com. Uh, Wilfie's going to be hosting that one from next week. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I am now. (laughs) Interesting. So other than Good Stuff Andy, which we've sort of discussed in a, or Good Stuff Criminal, which discussed in a little bit of depth there, is there anything else on the runner side that you've been toying around with? Have you had a wizard deck or an anarch deck that you felt sort of comfortable with post MWL? Well, I mean, I sort of tried to rebuild the, just the generic um, uh, wizard, Temujin wizard deck that was all the rage at Worlds, but... Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily, at least the list that we played had Faust. I know you don't necessarily need to put Faust in the deck for it to be good. Um, yep. But I'm the addition of Temujin to the most, like the extra three influence on Temujin doesn't really matter too much, but it's just I'm not, I haven't had enough experience with it to work out what sort of threats you want to be playing to deal with the Corp. Like mm. now that, you know, Sensi isn't as big. Do you necessarily need as many early game interactive cards? Like maybe instead of Street Peddler, you can play some something like Earthrise Hotel um, yep. or something like that. Like that's those questions I'm not certain how to answer. And maybe Yogg and what do you do on Yogg versus Black Orchestra? Do you want to play Black Orchestra? Um, even though it's much less efficient. And are you worried about, like, cyber decks? Are you worried about getting locked out of servers by Byroids? You know, mm-hmm. um, same with Mimic versus Mark Ultra, MK Ultra. Um, do you need Sausage Slums? Do you need Plascretes? Do you need Tag Defense? You know, we're playing two networkings at Worlds. Yeah. Do you still need that sort of thing? Um, what sort of cutlery do you play? So, like, yeah, I think those are bigger questions than is this deck still playable post-MWL because it... 100% is. Yes. Um, and, and also, what do you spend your remaining influence on after Temujin? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so like, I might take that to the tournament tomorrow just because I want to get some answers to those questions. Um, and like, so that's fairly straightforward, I think, but definitely still good. Okay. Um, uh... What have you been playing around with? Yeah, like, I mean, I was just having a look at um, the wizard deck that I had immediately pre-MWL, and it was 27 influence now. So, Oh, no. Yeah, you obviously need to make a few changes there. But I think just, you know, changing the Sifers back to Grimoires, changing uh, the Fausts into Yogs um, gets you to a point where you're very close and you're just sort of a couple of cuts away from having a legal deck. So there's... I think Wizard still has a place in the metagame, but I've been having sort of the same issues that you're talking about there where you're not quite sure exactly what 
threats you need to respond to because the corp metagame is still settling. And I think that's really the way things go in Netrunner when you have a new metagame is that runner decks have to be reactive. They have to have tools to deal with the common corp threats. Um, and if you're not something that's as generically useful as, you know, a shape of rig that has R&D multi-access or a crim good stuff deck that just has all reasonable breakers a lot and a lot of money. Um, if you're playing an Anarch deck that wants to try and dismantle what the corpse trying to do and then ram home an advantage later, you really have to know what they're trying to do. <laughs> so yeah, that takes either some very accurate guesswork or a, a bit of testing. Uh-huh. Um, and do we want to talk about the corp many, like what, what we think is good in the corp side very quickly? Yeah. So there's a few things I've been testing out. I w immediately post MWL, uh, I went straight to a food coats style deck. Um, and I found that it was still just a little too slow. Um, I was getting to that classic HB situation of scoring six points in most games and maybe, you know, 30 to 40% of the time getting the eighth point, <laughs> um, the seventh and eighth points. Uh, but that's probably not enough. And, you know, it is dependent on, still whether you manage to draw your caprices to score the GFI at any point, uh, still having enough money, I think was challenging when you're trying to res multiple Fairchilds in the game. Yes. Your Fairchilds aren't just dying instantly to Cypher, which is obviously what makes the deck go from completely and horribly unplayable to actually being decent. Uh, the fact that the food codes engine of breaker Bay grid, Adonis campaign, um, some operation economy, it can still be reasonably slow at getting to the point where you can res all your ice comfortably and have enough money for side games and have enough money to score agendas. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe I need to play more corporate sales teams because that helps to smooth out um, your points curve over the game, I guess, and, and scoring agendas. But yeah, I'm still fiddling around with that a little bit, trying to get it to a point where I'm happy with the economy. But certainly the core strategy of the deck is back to a point where you don't feel like you're getting curb stomped by Cypher. Um, yeah, like, I think there are lots of ways you can take that kind of deck. It's sort of like Andy in the sense that, good good stuff Andy in the sense that, like, there are lots of packages that you can play and the deck is sort of flexible enough that you can do lots of different things. You can, depending on what you want, what uh, angle you necessarily want to take. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, whether you want to play a more ice heavy deck to try and leverage your accelerated beta tests, um, whether you want to play more asset economy, I only play three Adonis. I do play a Sandberg to try and, uh, leverage if the runner just sits back and lets you have heaps of money, trying to turn that into a little bit more defensive advantage. But again, that's, it's a difficult one because when it doesn't work, it feels pretty bad to have that card in your deck. Yeah, I mean, or you can do something like faster, play cheaper ice, so you can have the chance of getting to seven points before the um, combo shaper decks take over, especially. Yeah, and again, that gets into that um, the back and forth of the metagame. Once the the dominant corp deck has sort of settled down, the runner decks will all respond to that deck's tempo, whatever it is. And then the remainder of the corp decks can try and respond to those runner decks tempo and, and mix it up a little bit and, and put them into a space that they're not comfortable. And if it turns out that the best runner decks are playing at a reasonably slow pace, then yeah, trying to get a more aggressive corp deck that scores out quickly behind small ice 
um, and has that Caprice Nisei as backup for later in the game if things don't go perfectly might be the way to go. A couple of other decks I've been toying around with, I, I sleeved up the a similar sync deck to what we played at Worlds, and, and that's been playing out all right. MCA Informant helps to deal with Aaron Moron, so that's uh, sort of one angle that I've taken. And the other one is that I've been trying out the new Scorpius ID to see if a sort of stack attack, Salem's Hospitality, Ibrahim Salem, Carla Go to Real TV style deck has any legs. And yeah, it's had mixed results so far, but certainly the Scorpius ability is reasonably powerful. So I think in summary, the Corp metagame is wide open. I've even grabbed out the old biotech deck that I try to bring out whenever there's a new format to see if it's good enough and won a few games at that. So that's good fun. Um, any final thoughts from you, Wolfie? Uh, no, I think that, yeah, I'm really excited to see where the metagame goes from here. Excellent. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at thewinningagenda at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Facebook at The Winning Agenda. You can find us on Twitter at Winning Agenda. And you can hit us up on Patreon if you want to throw a few dollars our way. It's www.patreon.com slash The Winning Agenda. Thanks to you all for listening. And we'll see you next week with a in-depth discussion of the cards in Terminal Directive. Thanks for listening. Bye.